From St. Mary's University of Minnesota, you're listening to St. Mary's Currents. I'm your host, Ben Rogers. Уважаемые граждане России, дорогие друзья, тема моего выступления события на Украине. On February 24, 2022, after months of amassing troops at the border of Ukraine, Russia, at the direction of President Vladimir Putin, launched an attack on Ukraine. Good afternoon. The Russian military has begun a brutal assault on the people of Ukraine. Without provocation, without justification, without necessity, this is a premeditated attack. At the time of this recording, the conflict has been going on for exactly two weeks. According to Reuters, 1,800 people have been injured, 13,000 have been killed, and nearly 2,000 buildings have been destroyed. We are shelled by Russians. We are all scared. Why us? We are regular people. To understand the intricacies and historical context behind Russia's invasion, I'm joined by St. Mary's resident Russia expert, Eric Lipman. In this episode, we discuss the rhetoric used by Putin, how Cold War history and politics have played a role in the conflict, and how it might unfold moving forward. Ura! Eric, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the Ukraine-Russia conflict. As this devastating war is at the top of world news and in many of our minds, I think it's really important for us to be able to provide some historical context to what led to this moment. But first, can you introduce yourself and tell our audience what you do at St. Mary's and what your academic interests are? Well, sure. I'm Eric Lippmann. I'm an associate professor of history on the Winona campus at St. Mary's. I teach mostly European, Middle Eastern, and Russian history classes here, and I'm a Russianist by training uh, with focus in Russian religious thought. All right. Before diving into the current conflict, I want to go back to previous statements Russian President Vladimir Putin has made about Russia and Ukraine. After the 2014 annexation of Crimea, Putin said that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. He echoed that again in July 2021 when speaking about Russian-Ukrainian relations. How much validity is there to that statement? Well, that's one of those situations where how do you determine what are the same people? You know, I mean, is it the same blood? Is it the same language? Is it the same religion? You know, every every nation has its particular concepts of how they determine us versus them. I think that there is a degree of overlap, certainly, between Russian and Ukrainian history. They are of the same religion. Russian Orthodoxy and Ukrainian Orthodoxy are basically the same thing. And the Russian identity has its origins in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Ukrainians would call it Kiev now. Russians have traditionally called it Kiev. And so Russians have more of a reason perhaps to think of themselves as descended from Ukrainians. But I think it's also important to point out that the term Ukraine, it actually is from the Russian and Polish words Ukraina, which means at the border, right? At the edge, at the frontier. 
And so the people who formed their identity in that region think of themselves as frontier people at the borderlands of the Russian, Polish, and Ottoman empires back in the day. And they were sort of in between all of those great imperial states and their overreach. And so that's where a distinctive kind of Ukrainian identity starts to form is in the territory of that overlap. Absolutely. So... One of the major claims Putin has used to justify his invasion of Ukraine is that Ukraine is an illegitimate country that exists on land that's historically and rightfully Russian, a claiming that it was formed by the Bolsheviks. Uh, since this claim has been made, I've seen a few media outlets citing experts who say that this claim is false. Again, is there any truth to a claim like this? <laughs> Well, there's some truth to everything that, you know, gains traction, I suppose. I think in this case, the most technical truth is accurate in the sense that Ukraine in its current boundaries and its current configuration was the successor state to the Ukrainian SSR, right? The former Soviet Republic of Ukraine. So to that extent, those boundaries were drawn by the Soviet Union. However, it's inaccurate to suggest that Ukrainians themselves were somehow invented by Vladimir Putin or something like that, that there was no Ukrainian identity before that. As I mentioned before, you know, they thought of themselves as frontiers people. The Cossack legacy is very strong in the Ukraine. And I think also, you know, when we talk about the way Russians talk about them, you know, when we talk about Belarus, which is white Russia, which is just above Ukraine, that actually derives from a term that Russians applied to the people in that region. They called them white Russians, but they called Ukrainians Malaruski, right? Little Russians. And so Malaruski, from the Russian perspective, and Russians often refer to themselves as great Russians, right? And so they're the big Russians and the Ukrainians are the little Russians. And they often saw that as sort of a term of endearment in some cases, but Ukrainians didn't, right? They saw it as a term of condescension. But clearly it shows that even in the Russian mind, there was some distinctiveness between great Russians and little Russians, that they were somehow not the exact same people. Historically, has the idea of a sovereign Ukraine ever posed a threat to Russia? Well, <laughs> historically, there have been very few examples of a sovereign Ukraine. I would say the one example that we can point to in the recent past was immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution and in the context of World War I, when the newly formed Bolshevik Russia signed a treaty with Germany ending the USSR, what would become the USSR's involvement in World War I. When they ceded all that land to Germany, part of the territory that was given was this territory that we today call Ukraine. And the Germans set up a little puppet state in Ukraine. So there was an independent Ukrainian state. Now, it wasn't the borders of the current Ukrainian state. I mean, we can get bogged down in borders and where they should be drawn all day, right? But there was, at least for a brief period of time, an independent Ukrainian state. It eventually got swallowed up in the context of the Russian Civil War and the expansion of the Soviet Union, basically back into most of the traditional borders of the old Russian Empire. And so I think that's a big part of answering that question, is that 
There has almost never been a sovereign Ukraine per se, but Ukrainian identity has always been formed by the overlapping of Polish, Ottoman coming up from the Crimea and Russian identities. It was sort of a collision point of all of these different national identities. And so as such formed its own sort of unique identity in that frontier zone. And has that ever posed a threat to Russia then, or just that national identity? I mean, or? No, <laughs> only to the point that it adopted elements of these other identities, right? So sometimes in Russian history, you will see aspects of Polish identity filtering into Russia through Ukraine. And depending on your interpretation, has some problematic consequences. Or, you know, Ukrainian bishops in the 1600s, you know, making decisions based on their interactions with Polish Catholics. And, you know, that depending on how you read it, again, having potentially problematic consequences. But no, there's never been a sovereign Ukraine that posed any kind of threat to Russia whatsoever. I think the threat that Russia perceives in this case has entirely to do with Cold War politics and post-Cold War politics. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's actually my next question. Uh, you know, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, Putin pointed to Western political influence and NATO expansion as his reasoning for amassing troops at Ukraine's border. Uh, so you definitely think that Cold War history and politics are at play here? I definitely do. And, you know, I want to be careful here because I don't want to say anything that legitimizes the war as it currently exists. I think there was no valid pretext whatsoever for, for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. I think of all the rhetoric that Putin has put forward, this is perhaps the one that resonates the most with the Russian population. And that is, it is common in Russian circles and, you know, in, in the Russian population in general, to see the expansion of NATO after the Cold War as a threat. From the Soviet perspective, and I think, you know, there's not just one Soviet perspective, but I've read a lot of sort of late 80s, early 90s Soviet foreign policy thinking and, you know, then Russian foreign policy thinking after 1991. From that perspective, the Soviet Union sort of unilaterally de-imperialized itself, right? It allowed the Warsaw Pact countries to go. It eventually allowed its own republics to form, you know, independent nations all this kind of thing. And from the Soviet perspective, that was something they could have prevented if they wanted to. They could have rolled the tanks in and stopped it all, but they didn't. They sort of took the higher road and, and allowed these things to happen. What they were hoping for, according to these foreign policy documents I've read, is that the United States would reciprocate from its own imperial side of things, right? So right. If we let the Warsaw Pact go, then there's no longer any reason for NATO to exist. NATO is a defensive alliance that's formed in opposition to the Soviet Union and years of expansion of the Soviet Union. And when we make it clear that that's not going to happen anymore, the cool thing for you to do would be to let your alliance go too, right? And even though the United States made it very clear from the beginning that they weren't going to do that, there was a bit of mixed messaging in those early kind of heady days of everything falling apart in the East. And famously, and this is what Putin cites quite frequently, but it's also, you know, just part of Russian talk about that time period. The Secretary of State James Baker under the first George Bush presidency 
proclaimed at that point that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. So in an ideal world, hearing that, Russians believed that the post-Cold War world a conflict which they believed they ended by themselves, you know, in opposition to American evil empire rhetoric from the Reagan regime and all that kind of stuff, that they took the higher road and simply disinvested from that whole conflict. They looked forward to a multipolar world, perhaps in which the United Nations played a central role and a variety of different countries, you know, had say over global governance types of issues. Of course, they thought of themselves as always having a seat at the table, right? UN Security Council, all those five, you know, veto powers and all that kind of stuff, the five permanent members. But from the Russian perspective, what they did not envision, what they sort of perceived as a worst nightmare scenario was that the United States would take advantage of this situation and press its advantage, um, expanding NATO right to their borders and, you know, trying to act as the global superpower. Uh, dominating everybody else. And I would say that many Russians, a large percentage of them, see that as exactly what happened, that the United States sort of saw itself stepping into the vacuum that the Soviet Union left behind and became the one global superpower whose job was to run the rest of the world. So, yeah, I think, you know, on that front, the Russians... There is something of a legitimate security gripe there. It may just be a perceived security gripe, and it's based in Cold War mentalities of where missiles are placed and all that kind of thing, and how close they get to our borders, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think the Ukraine really poses as a threat here is the notion that if Ukraine were to join NATO, that would mean that a former Soviet republic, and I'm not talking about the Baltic states, which were always separate culturally and linguistically and various things like that. They were in NATO very quickly. Um, if Ukraine were to join NATO from the Russian perspective, that would be eating into historically Russian imperial territory, right? So these are the people who form the very core of what it means to be Russian. And so as NATO eats into that territory, then Russian security and Russian identity get further and further undermined. We'll be right back in a minute. Separate yourself from the rest and take your career to the next level with an online degree from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Nationally ranked and fully accredited, our programs are student-centered with faculty that infuse practical career experience into their teaching and engage in their disciplines. Set your own schedule with our flexible online platform and access your coursework anywhere. With our selection of affordable online degree programs, promising career opportunities will follow. Explore what's next at St. Mary's University of Minnesota. We already predicted the speculation that Russia plans to restore its empire within imperial borders. 
This is absolutely not true. While researching, I was reading an article, and it was kind of a conversation between a political science professor and a history professor from the University of Chicago. And they were talking, right, like, during this situation, some people are like, Putin's trying to resurrect the Soviet Union. And what this one historian was saying, no, it's it's very much more kind of an imperial Russia. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so what I think we see here in this rhetoric is a distinct shift in some of Putin's thought. Now, up until this point, Putin has relied on both imperial rhetoric and Soviet rhetoric. And I think what's what's intriguing about this is that he knows that works because, you know, many, many people point to him as his success in Russia as being tied to his ability to create a narrative that effectively blends Soviet and Russian imperial identities, right? So this is an interesting change because what we hear here in these last few speeches is a really dramatic sort of throwing the Soviet Union under the bus, basically, and an appeal back to that old Russian imperial rhetoric. And I think that's scary to a lot of historians, especially because the Russian empire was an absolute autocracy, right? So there's a very real degree to which notions of security based on mutual assured destruction and the multiplicity of factors that would have to go into ever launching nuclear weapons made the Soviet Union a safer model. But in the imperial model, you know, there is one czar and there's one leader and that's it. And so the fear that Vladimir Putin is trying to resurrect the empire with all of its sort of autocratic structures, which, you know, he's obviously quite an autocrat himself. But but that fear, I think, is is really a substantial one and worth worrying about because, you know, there is a very real degree to which on a nuclear level, we are less secure now than we ever were during the Soviet days. All right. This might be a difficult question to answer, just kind of considering how extremely fluid this situation is. But as a scholar of Russian history, how do you see this unfolding? Well, (laughs) I always tell my students that, you know, the value of history isn't in its ability to predict the future. But I do have some ideas. I mean, I think I've been wrong in most of my ideas up until this point, I should point out. And so has virtually everybody else. One of the things that we have all known about Putin from very early on is that he's a chess player. He likes to imagine diplomacy in terms of chess, and he likes to be unpredictable to a fault, right? I think nobody predicted that he would actually invade the country. And so almost as if to say, see, I'm unpredictable, he did it. And it was shocking. Even somebody like Fyodor Lukyanov, who's one of the top Russian foreign policy experts in Russia, is saying, you know, ultimately, Putin is predictable. We've watched him for 20 years. We know what he's like. And this is not in his playbook, right? Full-blown invasion is not something he does. And so all of us were kind of shocked that it actually happened. I will say that, you know, for me, the rhetoric of delegitimizing the Ukrainian state and its right to exist was the first really big red flag for me that this might actually happen. You know, that line has been sort of floating around Russia talk for a long time, but for the president to give a very publicized speech in which he delegitimizes a state, that's pretty scary stuff. So I think now that the invasion has happened, how do I see it playing out? 
my initial concept was that what he's aiming for is a quick surgical strike that humiliates the Ukrainian military. I think he wants an overwhelming show of Russian force that brings them to the table directly. I think, you know, his sense is that with all of these Western voices chattering in Zelensky's ear, Zelensky's much bolder than he should be, you know? And if we can just show him what's what and show him that he really is at our mercy and force him to negotiate with us directly without any of the little devils on his shoulder, so to speak, he'll come to reasonable terms. And perhaps, you know, I think what Russia is going for is some signing away of any prospect of NATO involvement. I think that's the real goal of all of this, at least on the local level, is to make sure that Ukraine simply will never join NATO. And, you know, at this point, with a full invasion behind him, my guess is that Putin will also demand some sort of land concessions, perhaps linking Crimea to the Donbass region, you know, there may be Russian annexations of Russian majority regions of eastern Ukraine and things like that. But I really don't think that he's going for what people seem to be afraid of, which is some sort of full on occupation of Ukraine. I think that's entirely unreasonable and beyond Russia's military capacity to pull off, in all honesty. I mean, there's 44 million people in that country, right? And it's heavily armed. Right? I mean, an insurrection could roil there for decades and funded and supplied from the Polish border. You know, I, I can just imagine, you know, all kinds of arms. It'd be another Russian Afghanistan times 10, you know. So I don't think that's what he's going for. And I really don't think he wants to fight in the cities. I think Russians have a lot of experience during World War II with urban warfare. And they're not looking to repeat that. I mean, it was hell in Stalingrad, right? I mean, things don't get much worse than that kind of scenario. And Ukraine has a lot of cities that play a big role in the Russian imagination, the Russian popular imagination, Kiev being one of them, and Odessa being another. And I think the upshot of that is that he can't do what he did in Chechnya in 2003, which is simply surround the capital city of Grozny and bomb it into oblivion. Like just pull out the big heavy artillery and circle the city and just level it and build a new capital outside of it. You can't do that to Kyiv, right? Kyiv is, is the cradle of Russian civilization from their perspective, and you can't just level it. The monastery of the caves, the big churches in the middle of Kiev. I mean, these are core to the Russian imagination. So if the Russian military were to try to take that city, it would be a dogged street by street, you know, floor by floor, building by building fight. And they're not looking for that. But I think it is scary that what is currently going on with the negotiations seems to be more directed at civilian evacuations than it is at actually coming to a ceasefire. All the ceasefire talks have been unsuccessful so far. Civilian evacuation talks have been the only ones that have been relatively successful. And that worries me actually, because I watched this happen in Chechnya in 2003, in which civilian evacuation, you know, the windows for civilian evacuation when they closed, what that meant was everybody left in the city is a legitimate target. They chose to stay. That means they're fighters. That means they're resistors. 
And so we can ignore the possibility of civilian casualties at this point because we've given them all a chance to get out. Now we go in heavy, you know, and that's that's what I worry about. And, you know, as I said, the center of Kyiv, the historic city of Kyiv is not something that the Russians can level. But there's a whole lot of Soviet suburban sprawl around that city that they could just burn to the ground if they felt like it, you know, and that's what worries me. That's what worries me with a lot of these other cities, too, in Ukraine that don't have as much of a cultural significance to Russian imagination. Hmm. Eric, as these events continue to unfold, for those of us who are removed from the situation, what should we consider as we continue to watch from afar? Well, I think it's important to realize in cases like this, especially with that rhetoric of state delegitimization, that nation states are, you know, in the famous words of Benedict Anderson, imagined communities. No nation state, including Russia, is somehow objectively legitimate. Each nation state within its boundaries is a sovereign state and international law recognizes them as such. But to some extent, they're all constructions of the imagination, right? And that's why on the international legal level, we've agreed as a global collective that you can't simply invade countries, that it's not acceptable to cross sovereign boundaries, even if you don't accept, you know, the logic behind the legitimacy of their state. That's not valid reason to invade and, you know, remove regimes and things like that. And I think it's worth taking this moment to reflect on ourselves as well. As we beat the drums and as we get everybody to boycott everybody in Russia, it's important to realize that we didn't face anything like these consequences for very similar types of behavior. You know, there's more than a million dead Iraqis who you can't claim are better off than they would have been if Saddam Hussein had stayed in power. And the Russians will frequently point to the hypocrisy of the American moralizing about this. And there's some legitimacy to that claim too, that ultimately we didn't face the consequences because of the global position we have and because nobody could inflict consequences on us, even if they disagreed with our behavior. The Russians are suffering consequences, but they're doing so because it can be done to them, right? I think that's that's a significant thing to keep in mind. Again, I'm not legitimizing their behavior. What I'm trying to do is, is put it into a broader context and understand that our behavior hasn't always been legitimate either. This has been a great discussion, and I think it really gives the context to the moment that our listeners need. Eric Lippman, thank you so much. Thank you. St. Mary's Currents is a production of the St. Mary's University of Minnesota Office of Marketing and Communication. It is produced by Ben Rogers and Deb Nergang. It is recorded, edited, and engineered by Jeffrey DeMarsh. Our theme music is written by Will Van de Cromert. I'm Ben Rogers. We'll see you next time for St. Mary's Currents.